Have you guys ever seen the Marvel movie Spider-Man? You know, I'm talking about the one with Tobey Maguire in it. The classic Marvel movie, if you've seen it. But there, there's an iconic scene in the movie that he just drops a, a truth bomb in it. it. It's the scene when Uncle Ben is sitting in the car with Peter Parker. You know, Peter Parker, Spider-Man. And he's talking to him because Peter had just whooped up a kid at school. So little, little scrawny Peter Parker had been bullied for so long. And then he gets his spidey powers and someone tries to bully him. And he just turns on him and, and beats the snot out of him. And, it, you know, it's this glorious day for Peter Parker. But Uncle Ben finds out about it. And he's trying to, he's trying to instruct young Peter on how to live life because he knows that Peter's parents have passed. And, and so he's trying to be a, a good helper, a good guardian for him. And, and so he turns to young Peter and he says that statement. So iconic. Many of you know, he says, with great power comes great responsibility, which was just like this potent truth from Stan Lee written in a, a comic book about Spider-Man. It's one of those that all of us remember because there's just so much power in that statement. But that statement didn't originate with Stan Lee. It, that's, not, that's not from a comic book series. That, that truth actually is ancient. It originates in God's word. Today, we're gonna hear from God's word in the book of Amos, that idea, just a, a slightly different one, but it's this. With great privilege comes great responsibility. Now, now, when I use the word privilege, I know the word privilege is a loaded word. You're going, okay, was well, it going to be about white privilege, Jason? No, this, isn't, this isn't about white privilege or black privilege or brown privilege. This isn't about that kind of privilege. This is about the privilege of what it means for us to be children of Almighty God. What it means for us to be his people, to bear his name. With that privilege comes great responsibility. This is exactly what Amos is about to tell the nation of Israel. And they're going to see why they're in so much trouble because with great privilege comes great responsibility. It's in Amos chapter three. So open your Bibles, if you will. Book of Amos. We're picking up where we left off last week. And so I strongly encourage you guys that if you didn't hear last week's message, we kicked off the book of Amos. We're going to be traveling through this book chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the entire summer. So you're going to want to go back and rehear the history and the context because it'll explain a whole lot of what's going on in this particular prophetic book. Well, we're going to jump into Amos chapter three. Read just the first couple of verses because he's going to teach us some great truth here as well. Here's what it says. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, I want to stop just for a moment and focus in on verse two because it's, it's actually pretty strange here. He says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you. You don't expect him to say that. You expect him to say, because I know you, because I have a unique relationship with you, therefore I'm going to care for you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you. That's not what it says. He says, because I know you, I'm going to punish you. I don't know about you, but that's not the kind of friend I want to have around. Because I know you, I'm going to punish you. And, you know, interestingly enough, there are a lot of people who view God this way. When they think about God, they think about a God who's angry, who's mean, who's just ready to smite us. And there are people who don't want to be anywhere near God or his church because if that's who God is, I don't want to be around him. But listen, if you have this idea of God, let me help you. This is not the God the Bible talks about. When it says, I, I have known you, therefore I will punish you, it's not talking about a mean, angry God. It's talking about a father who disciplines his children. He's talking about a father who cares enough to do something about his kids. That's actually what it means when it says, you only have I known. That, that doesn't mean that God only knew about the Israelites and like, oh, they're Egyptians and Philippians. I had no clue that God is omniscient. He, he knows everything. He knew that there were thousands and thousands of other families and nationalities and languages and ethnicities. He was completely aware of all that. 
When it says, you alone have I known, that word to know is yada in Hebrew. And it carries this idea of, of an intimacy, a, a, a deep relationship with somebody else. What is re, he was referring to is the fact that he had handpicked Israel to be in a special relationship with this nation that was deeper than any other nation of the world. In fact, he really digs into this idea back in the, the book of Deuteronomy. So, so keep your place in Amos chapter three. And if you can, go to the book of Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book in the Old Testament. I want you to find chapter seven and look at verses six through eight. Listen to what it talks about, how it talks about this unique relationship that Yahweh God has with his nation, Israel. Verse six, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He says, I have chosen you and I pursued you and I loved you and I came after you, not because you were great, not because you deserved it. You were the smallest of all nations. I chose you because I set my love on you to make you my own. So I read this, it makes me think about my own adoption story of my, my two children that are adopted. I got six kids and two of them are adopted from China. My son, Max, we adopted 12 and a half years ago. And my daughter, Jovi, we adopted about three and a half years ago. And, and I, man, I learned so much about the nature of God through this adoption process because of how it works. If you know anything about adoption, if you're a part of Fielder Church, and I'm sure you're aware of it because we talk about this often, but maybe you're not aware of it. The way it works is not that the child looks at lists of parents and picks the parent. The, the child doesn't do anything, interview parents. The child doesn't pay money to be matched with a parent. That's not how it works. It works the other way around. There, are, there is a family, there are parents who choose a child, who set their love on that child and pursue that child. This is exactly what happened. I, I remember it so well, our first child, Max, that we saw him and we loved him and we wanted to adopt him. So we began to pursue him. We chose him. We, we paid all the fines and all the things we had to do to be able to travel over there and bring him into our house. Max didn't, we didn't choose it because he deserved it, because he earned it. We just set our love on him and therefore we brought him in and made him our own child. That's really what he's talking about here. This is exactly what the father did to Israel. He saw them, he chose them, he pursued them, he set his love on them and made him his own. And he paid whatever price was necessary to make them his own. In fact, that price is what it's talking about when he says that I redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In fact, if you were to go back to, to the book of Amos chapter three, that's what the first verse was talking about. When he says, you know, hear this word, the Lord has spoken against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. He's talking about the Exodus story, how God had been so gracious to redeem them from their place of slavery. In fact, in the chapter before, last week when we looked at it, in chapter two, this was the very thing he was getting at as he was throwing his indictment upon the nation of Israel. Listen to how God brings this back up to them, reminds them of what he's done to, to purchase them, to acquire them, to bring them and make them his own. If you were to go to Amos chapter two, verses nine through 11, listen to what it says. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. Listen to the last statement. You go, isn't it so? Don't you remember what I've done? How I rescued you? How I made you my own? How I pursued you and chose you and loved you? 
Don't you remember? Now, what he's talking about right here, he's talking about the Exodus. He's talking about the moment in history when God redeemed Israel from slavery. Now, I know every one of you listening comes from different levels of history and understanding. There's some of you totally understand what the Exodus is. There's some of you going, what in the world is the Exodus? So I want to make sure we're all on the same page with a, a real brief little history lesson. So going back to the time when the nation of Israel, there were millions of them and they were slaves in the land of Egypt. For 400 years, they were slaves in the land of Egypt. They were oppressed, they were suffering and mistreated and they began to cry out to God to save them. And so God sends a deliverer, Moses, to them. And Moses is able to confront Pharaoh asking, let my people go. And when Pharaoh refuses, God in a mighty hand brings 10 plagues upon the nation of Egypt. The 10th one being the, the death of the firstborn son. And finally, after the 10th plague, Pharaoh relents and says, you, you guys can go free. I can't handle this anymore. And so the nation of Israel, they, they come up in freedom. They're protected by the Passover lamb. So they're alive and well, and they leave the country. They head out of Egypt and they're coming up to the Red Sea. And they get to the Red Sea and they're, they're blocked. They're, maybe they were gonna go around it, but Pharaoh changed his mind and decided to pursue after them to kill him. So he sends his whole army after them. And now they're trapped. The Red Sea on one side, Pharaoh's army on the other side. And then God does another incredible miracle. Has Moses raise the staff parts the Red Sea. They cross over the Red Sea on dry ground. And when the Egyptians come after them, the waters fall back over them and destroys the entire Egyptian army. And now the Israelites are truly free. Now they're supposed to head up to the promised land that God had promised them, but because of their sin and their rebellion, they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. But even though they were rebellious, God still loved them. And he gave them literal bread from heaven. It was called manna, provided from them from heaven, gave them water that would flow out of rocks. He was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He would guide them all around to protect them. He was so good to them. And finally, when it came time, they went up to the promised land. He split the, the, the Jordan River again so they could cross over. He knocked down the walls of Jericho just by letting them shout at it. He did miracle after miracle after miracle, outstretched arm because he loved them and he chose them and he was gonna do everything to make him his own child, his treasured possession. This is what it meant for them to be the people of God. This is what it meant that he says, I knew you. I mean, what a privilege they had to be called the people of God, known by his name, Yahweh. But remember what I said before, with great privilege comes great responsibility. You see, they, they were privileged to be called by the name Yahweh, to be his people, but they had a responsibility. And that responsibility was to reflect the glory of Yahweh God to the people around them. They weren't supposed to hoard their knowledge of God. They were supposed to share that knowledge with the whole world so they could all see the glory of God. They were supposed to show the world just how different Yahweh God was, that he was a merciful, beautiful, kind, generous God. In fact, the whole covenant with Abraham, he was spoke Genesis chapter 12. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing so that the nations will find their blessing in you because that's the kind of God he is. So he calls Israel, be the kind of people who bless others. That's how you reflect my glory. They were supposed to be the helper to the helpless. There's so many laws in the Old Testament that talk about helping the widow and the orphan and the, the foreigner and the poor and caring for them. Why? Because that reflects the glory of God. He is a helper to those in need. To slaves who cry out, he comes in and liberates them. And so we too are supposed to be a helper to the helpless because that reflects the glory of God. He called Israel to be a people who had a different moral compass in the rest of the world. They were to be holy as he was holy. They were to show the world just how different Yahweh was than any other God. They had this responsibility. 
and they utterly failed at it. They lived in rebellion. They oppressed people. They did evil. They didn't help the helpless. They didn't bless others. They didn't live different and holy lives. And they maligned and marred the very name of Yahweh God. And that's why he says, I have known you and you alone of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I must punish you. Not because he's mean and angry and hateful, but because he loves his children and a good father disciplines his children. Maybe you can think of it this way. If you struggle with this idea of the punishment of God, think about my own son, Max. So Max and I, we, we have a great relationship. I got six kids, like I said. I got five daughters and one boy. So he's, he's my man. This is, this is my boy. And we have a great relationship that I, I, I deeply cherish. In fact, just, just the other day on Father's Day, he wrote me a handwritten note and he just said some incredibly kind things. And at the end of it, he says, Daddy, when I grow up, I want to be just like you. I got to tell you guys, if you want to bless your daddy, sons, you tell him you want to be just like him when you grow up. Man, there's nothing he could have said to bless me more. I love my boy, Max. And you know what I love? I love that he bears my last name. Pobrecito, Max Paredes. His first name is Max, last name Paredes, and he's Chinese. The dude is so, so confused all the time. But he bears my name, and I love it. The other day he came home from school and he had a name tag and it said Paredes on it. And I just beamed. That's my boy. He bears my name. Let me tell you, he does it well. If you know my son, Max, you know he is incredible. He just, people come up to me all the time and just say, your son, Max, he is so phenomenal. And I beamed. He is bearing my name well. But, but could you imagine how it would be if he wasn't like that? I'm here at the Pioneer campus of, the, of our church and, and I'm in the Metro Center. Outside, there's a big old hallway. On Sunday morning, people are walking all around. Could you imagine if my son Max was walking through the hallways of this building, just cussing like a sailor? Just like walking up, punching people, beating up on little kids. Imagine he's like stealing stuff and hurting people. And like, do, do you think if my son was acting that way that I would just sit back idly? Not on your life, man. I, that brother would get what we call papao in Spanish. He, he, would be, he would be disciplined. I would not let that boy run like that. Not because I hate him, but because I love him. I chose him. He's my son. He bears my name. I wouldn't let him mar our mutual name that way. I'm going to discipline him because I love him. You know, when, when some kids at Walmart throwing a temper tantrum, you may look at them, but you're not going to discipline them. That's, that's not your child. But if your child's throwing a temper tantrum, brother, watch out. I'm about to release the belt. The chancla is going to come flying at you. I want to do something because I want to make sure that you behave because you're my child because I love you. This is why the father disciplines us. You can call it punishment and you can go all weird places, but you got to recognize, go to Hebrews 13. It is the discipline of a father who loves us. And so the father looks at Israel and he sees that they bear his name and they're not walking according to his ways. And the natural consequence of that is the discipline of almighty God. It is just cause and effect. In fact, as you keep reading the text in chapter three, you're going to see this is the very point Amos tries to make. Hey guys, listen to me. The, the punishment of God is simply the effect that's driven by the cause of sin. It's just cause and effect. Look at verses three through six. You're going to see this play out. He says this. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in the city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? 
Seven rapid-fire questions, and the whole point of these questions was just to show there's the same answer every time. No, 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 no. There's a cause, and there's an effect. If the trap is coming in together, that's because there's a cause. An animal is stuck in it. If, if there's a, a, a bird that falls, it's because the trap was set for it. If there's a, a city that's in panic, it's because the trumpet an alarm was blown. There's, there's an activity, but there's always a cause of that activity, a cause and effect. And the reason he's bringing us on this journey is what he's trying to tell us and what he's trying to tell Israel is that, yes, I know punishment is coming, but it's just cause and effect. When you sin, the natural effect, cause of sin, the effect is punishment. That's why over the next bit of the chapter, verses 7 through 10, are going to come back to the cause. Here's their sin. And then verses 11 through 15 are going to show the effect. Here are the consequences of that sin. Look at it. Verses 7 through 10. Look at the cause here. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. So here's what Amos is saying. Look at you guys. Look at the sin within you. In fact, he does something pretty crazy in verse nine. He says, I'm calling witnesses to testify against you to people he says, the strongholds in Ashdod, that's referring to the nation of the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were the people who tried to fight against Israel when they were coming into the promised land. Pagan nation, very ungodly. And the other nation was the land of Egypt. These are the very people who oppressed the Israelites for 400 years. These were pagan, ungodly, ruthless people. And what Amos is saying is, I'm calling the Philistines and the Egyptians because they are more holy than you, Israel, and they can testify against you because of the sin inside of you. And what's that sin? He says, look at the tumults, look at the chaos, the anarchy inside you. Look at the oppression. You oppress people in your midst. You were supposed to bless people, be a helper to the helpless, and you're oppressing the poor and the needy. The second half, verse 10, look at those who store up violence and robbery. You're attacking and you're stealing and you're maligning and marring my name. The worst accusation of all came in the first part of verse 10. He says, they do not even know how to do right. Here's the great irony of it. God, the one who is right, the righteous God, says, I have known you above all the people. So they know the God who is right and yet they still don't even know how to do right. In other words, they're just claiming a pretend knowledge of God, but they don't really know the one who is always right, the righteous God. And he's saying, because of this sin, because of your brokenness, here's the cause. Verses 11 through 15, here's the natural consequence of it. My punishment is coming. Look at verse 11. Therefore, says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your stronghold shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as a shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or, or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house and the houses of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, get ready, punishment is coming. And that punishment is gonna be severe. He talks about, it's gonna be like a shepherd who rescues just a piece of a lamb. 
from the lion. A, a piece of an ear, maybe a part of a leg. In other words, there's not going to be much left. And he says, you have, you have your rich opulent homes with all your couches and beds. This is what only the rich had. And you're only going to get these little splinters, these little parts of that stuff's going to remain because the punishment is going to be complete. And he even gives a couple more reasons why punishment was coming. Because of your false worship and because of your self-indulgence. When he talks about the altars of Bethel, he's referring to the fact they had set up counterfeit places of worship in the city of Dan and the city of Bethel. And he was tired of their counterfeit worship. I'm going to talk more about that next week. But no, he's saying, I'm going to punish this because I will not put up with a fake faith. The other one was the, the self-indulgence, the, the lap of luxury, the opulence. Talks about the winter house and the summer house. They, they've got vacation homes. They've got homes that are inlaid with ivory. They're, they're just, just showing off all their wealth. They have great houses or, or mansions that they live in. And the reason he's indicting them is because they're at the same time where people all over the land of Israel who were literally starving to death while they were living in opulence. They were supposed to be a helper to the helpless. They were supposed to be one who blesses the needy. And yet they're living in op opulence and self-indulgence, completely forgetting about these people. And God says, I will not take it. I will not let you mar my name. Your punishment is coming. Now listen, this is just bringing us right back to the same idea before. The reason God is punishing is because with great privilege comes great responsibility. To be the people of God means we have, to, we have to bear his name. We have to show and reflect his glory. And when we don't, we too will suffer the discipline of Almighty God. When we do not walk in generosity, when we do not bless others, when we do not help the helpless, when we do not walk in holiness, when we do not live according to his character and spread his glory, then we can rest assured the discipline of God is coming. So here's my question for you for the time I have left with you. What are we gonna do to ensure that we don't fall under the, the discipline of Almighty God? Because we don't have to come under his punishment and his discipline. Well, I think the best thing we can do is learn from Israel's mistakes there's a few truths I want to give you just to make sure you understand exactly where they went wrong so that you don't make the same mistake. You may want to write some of these notes down. They'll be on your screen for you just so you can keep up with what's taking place. But here's the first thing I want you to hear. Talking about Israel, the moment they cease to reflect upon the goodness of God in the world, they cease to reflect the glory of God to the world. Think about that. Just, just park on that for a moment the moment they cease to reflect upon and remember and meditate on the goodness of God to them, the way he rescued them, the way he protected them, the way he provided for them, the miracle after miracle after miracle he did, when they cease to reflect upon the goodness of God in the world, then they cease to reflect the glory of God to the world. They no longer remembered his good deeds and they turned their back on God and they lived self-indulgent lives for themselves instead of for the glory of God. What they did is they entered into something called ingratitude, ungratefulness. What they needed to do was spend a moment with that beautiful tool called gratitude. Just thanking God, remembering all the great things he'd done. Here's what's so interesting. At this point in the book of Amos, they already had ceremonies set up to remember the goodness of God. There was this yearly celebration, this huge celebration called Passover. In the Passover celebration, they were supposed to sacrifice a lamb. They were supposed to walk through all the ways that God had protected the firstborn son, had taken them out in haste to, to, to free them from their slavery in Egypt, how they crossed over the Red Sea 
to remember all the goodness of God. In fact, the Israelites practiced these festivals and these celebrations religiously, and yet they still totally forgot the goodness of their God, and they were no longer grateful for all that God had done. They started to believe that they were the ones who had gotten to this position of prominence and opulence and power, and they started looking at themselves. And the moment they forgot the goodness of God, that's when their hearts turned evil. So there's a second truth that I want to make sure you know. You're going to want to write this one down too. Evil grows best in the soil of ungratefulness. Evil grows absolutely best, thrives in the soil of ingratitude and ungratefulness. When we're not grateful, it, it just takes heart, the evil inside, harbors that evil and just lets it spread and grow and take over. It, it might be just this microscopic evil inside of us, but when we're not grateful, it can just grow and grow and take over till we become evil, mean people. Wait, but think about it for a moment with me. The people that you know who are the most evil, those who have harmed you the most, those who have done the most heinous things in the world, they are always people who are not grateful. Because if they were grateful, you just can't be grateful and evil at the same time. When you're grateful for all that God has given you, you're not going to turn around and steal something from somebody else because you're just thankful for what you have. When you're grateful for God's kindness to you, you're not going to go around and be mean to somebody else. When you're grateful, it causes goodness and mercy and kindness and love to flow. But the people who are ungrateful, those are the ones who become cruel and mean and backbiting. And here's the reason why. It's because people who are ungrateful, they often take a victim mindset instead of a grateful mindset. That leads me to the third truth. I want you to know, Here, here's what it is. The opposite of gratitude isn't ingratitude. The opposite of gratitude is victimhood. Where you start to believe that you're a victim in your life. Victimhood is the opposite of gratitude. Now, I'm not saying that doesn't mean that you've been a victim before. Something really bad has happened to you. That happens to all of us. But there's a, a difference between being a victim in a moment and describing your whole self according to that victim moment. That, that's victimhood. I'm now defined by this thing that was done to me. And when people are victims, they, get, they lash out, they get angry, they get mean, they get hostile. Because victimhood just cause us to dwell on our hurt and hurt people, hurt other people. But let me go ahead and help you. I want you to understand this truth because this will change your life. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are no victim. Here's the fourth truth I want you to have. In Christ Jesus, you are not a victim, you are victorious. We're not victims in Christ Jesus. No matter what's been done to us, we are victorious. Go to, go to the book of Romans and find, find chapter eight. L look at verse 37 in chapter eight. You're gonna read an incredible verse. It doesn't say we're more than victims, although that's true. It says we're more than conquerors. Conqueror isn't even enough. We're more than victorious. That's who we are in Christ Jesus. We're not victims. And here's the reason why. Because our God can take any circumstance and he can turn it around and use it for good. And that whatever dart, whatever arrow the enemy throws at us to take us down, God can use it around. We're not victims no matter what's happened to us. Our God has made us more than conquerors. We are victorious. And if we'll just remember that and celebrate all the great things that God has done with gratitude, we're going to reflect the power of his glory. And it's interesting the way the Lord works. He, 
He wanted me to see this truth this past week so that I didn't preach to you an empty message. So this past week, just if I were being honest with you, on Monday, I, I received one of the most disturbing, heart-wrenching, painful phone calls of my life. It, it was somebody who just, for whatever reason, had a, a desire to tell me how pathetic I am. And, 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 I, and I gotta be honest, I know I'm a lead pastor of a large church. I know people aren't gonna agree with me. People talk about me behind my back all the time. I'm, a, I'm aware it, it just, it goes with the job. And for the most part, I have pretty thick skin when it comes to stuff like that. But this particular one hurts so bad because I respect the person who called me so much. And, and they, I know them enough that they have my cell phone and they called me. And from the very moment, it was 100 miles an hour tearing into me. And man, they blew a new hole in me. It was just more than I could handle. It, it was just, it was so painful. And this person spoke to every one of my insecurities and just said, Jason, you were doing such a terrible job leading this church. Things were so much better when Pastor Gary, the previous pastor, was leading. Now that you're leading, man, everybody's leaving. Staff are leaving. Church members are leaving. They can't stand the way you're leading. You're doing a terrible job. Every insecurity in me, they just spoke at it and pointed to it and just burned me down. And 45 minutes of this, by the time the phone call was over, I, my, my spirit was just broken on the ground. And, and I know I shouldn't let this stuff get to me. I know... In Christ, I should identify myself in Christ and just brush it off, but it, it just broke my spirit. I was supposed to be writing this sermon and I, I couldn't. I, I called my wife and I just said, baby, I just need you to help me for a moment. My heart hurts. And I think what hurts is that I know there's some truth to that. I know I'm not who the previous pastor was. I, I know I still struggle with things. I wish I were better. And I, I just felt broken, so weak and confused and fragile. That night I had D group and I was going to my D group and I just totally hijacked the D group. One of the questions of accountability is how's your self-esteem? I said, guys, how much time you got? Because it's not doing real good right now. I went to bed that night discouraged like you wouldn't believe. Got up the next morning and, and I, I was praying and, and the Lord was speaking to me and there were some good moments. But at the end of it, I, I, I went to have my meeting. Uh, I had written the sermon in the second half of the day on Monday, which by the way, was my first draft was probably the angriest sermon I've ever written in my life. It's Amos to begin with. And then uh, my heart's hurt. So it wasn't a good sermon. God had to change it by then. But I had a 9 a.m. meeting with the other pastors who were gonna be preaching this message. And I walked them through the main idea of the sermon and came to this idea of gratitude and that we really can't reflect the glory of God until we remember the goodness of God. And I was walking them through that and, and we finished it and they went off to go right. And, and I felt like the Lord saying, it was my time of prayer. All right, Jason, you got to practice what you preach. I want you to take the next hour and I just want you to tell me all the ways that you're grateful for how I've been good in your life, Jason. Now, I don't know if you remember, for those of you watching this live here, th th this was on Tuesday of this past week. It was a glorious day. Like we're in, in the DFW area of Texas and the highs in late June were like mid 80s. It never happens. In the morning time, and that's when I was praying, it was just glorious house. As I'm walking around, I'm at our South Oaks campus because it's where our offices are after Snowmageddon. And I'm just, I'm like, I'm like Joshua around Jericho, just walking around the campus, just telling the Lord all the ways that I'm grateful. And for a full hour, I couldn't cease. I couldn't stop. There were so many ways that I was grateful for the goodness of God, for my marriage, for my children, for this opportunity to preach his word, for the glory of God, for his love, and even my failure. And when I was done with that hour, I want you to know my heart was so full of him. I, I, I was floating because joy had been restored to me. 
a peace that surpassed all understanding came over me. And I felt the good hand of God. And for the rest of the day, I wasn't bitter. I wasn't angry. I was filled with joy. And I was reflecting the character and the glory of God to everyone around me. Why? Because I took the time just to remember, not what I don't have, not what's been done to me, not, not that I'm a victim, but that God has been so good to me. How could I not praise his holy name? That's the power of gratitude. Gratitude has the ability to take us out of our victimhood and bring us back to the place of victory. And I want to suggest to you that if you want to live reflecting the glory of King Jesus, it'll only happen when you remember the goodness of Jesus in your life. Listen, God has called you. Those of you who are his people, you bear the name of Jesus. What a privilege you've been given. You bear the name above all names. The name of Jesus, the name that one day every knee will bow and tongue confess as Lord of the glory of God the Father. You bear the name. We've been given a great privilege. But with great privilege comes great responsibility. God, God calls us not to hoard the name, but to share the power and the beauty of the name, the glory of the righteous king, the one who came to save. We get to bless others in the name of Jesus. We get to help the helpless in the name of Jesus. We get to live holy lives in the name of Jesus so the whole world can see the glory of our king. We've been given that responsibility. But we gotta remember the goodness of our king if we're gonna do it. So here's my challenge for you. I want you today, at some point today, to take a moment and just express to the Lord what you're grateful for. I wanna encourage you to get a pen and paper and just start writing out. Take 10 minutes, 15, 20, 30, an hour, and just start writing out all the ways that God has been good to you because here's what I can guarantee you. When you start listing out what you're grateful for, that victimhood mindset will melt away and you're gonna come back to a place of victory and you will begin to declare the glory of King Jesus to the people around you. There's that kind of power. And, and, and if you want me to help you, I can kickstart it for you. If you want something every single one of us can be grateful for is that we have a father who would love us enough to send his one and only son so that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a message to be thankful for. Though we were dead in our sins and our rebellion against God, though we kept hurting ourselves and everyone else around us because of our selfishness and our brokenness, the Father loved us so much he couldn't stand to see us self-destruct. He sent his son Jesus to save us from our sin, to be the atoning sacrifice on the cross, to pay the penalty. He sent his spirit to convict us of the sin inside of us so that we would come back to him, ask for forgiveness, and be saved and in Christ Jesus, we have been given a brand new identity. We've been given a brand new future. We've been given a brand new community. We've been given a brand new eternity. Look at all we have to be thankful for. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to remember it. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. We're going to have a chance to remember the gospel of Jesus. But listen, I want you to know, even if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus yet, you have something to be thankful for. And let me tell you what it is. You have a God who loves you. A God who's chosen you. Who's pursuing you right now. Who's already paid the price to bring you into his family. And he's just asking you to stop running. And to say, I need you.
Jesus, I need you. I'm ready. Save me. That can happen to you today. You can find a relationship with Christ Jesus. You can be saved if you just receive what he's done for you by faith. Confess your sins to him. He'll forgive you. Give him your life. He'll save you. He'll make you his child. He'll give you his name. You have every reason to be thankful right now if you'll just turn to him. Listen, if you're ready to do that, we, we, we're pastors, we're on call, we're ready. We wanna reach out to you. You can just reach out to us. You can get your phone. You can text the word next step to 94253. Just like you see it on your screen. Or if you prefer, you can go to filler.org slash next step and it'll take you the exact same form. Take you about a minute to fill out that form. Let us know. We want to minister to you. I think God wants to work in you. Just let us know. But every single one of us who are here, we have a reason to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. And we're going to sing a song. Where we're going to talk about how we're grateful. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. My soul cries, hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. We're going to celebrate that. And when we're done, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Get your heart ready.